0: President Trump could have quoted Galatians 3.28, which talks about how we are all one in Christ. Something like that could have been really powerful, but instead it was entirely skipped over, which I think then justifies religious leaders standing up and, and condemning this as merely a photo op to garner support among his base, using a symbol that many of us in this country do hold sacred.
1: I have, for the most part, really resisted the temptation to become overly political in my preaching, in my actions, to kind of remain politically neutral. If I'm supposed to stay in my lane, then do we have this kind of unspoken mutual commitment that he's gonna stay
0: in his lane too? I'm Dan, and this is God for Grown Ups. And our guest tonight is Pastor Mark Griffith from St. Luke's Lutheran in Bellevue. And Mark and I are talking about The Upside Down Bible. So I am
1: super curious to hear your thoughts, Dan, on the events that transpired this week when we had uh, the President of the United States employ, um, I don't think there were members of active military, but there was certainly a military-looking police unit or some force of, of some kind to clear what looked like, by all intents and purposes, people just standing peacefully protesting, exercising what I would consider a pretty bedrock fundamental right of free speech, clearing them to go stand in front of a, an Episcopal church
0: with a Bible to get a photo. That's a very powerful statement. What is he saying? <laughs> right. And, and and what kind of reaction does that inspire? When I first heard about this, my immediate response was disgust. And, yeah. but, but after that, I, I thought to myself, you know, we really have to be careful here and make sure that we have the correct information. So the first thing I did, I read it as a Facebook post.
1: Yeah, that's what I first thought, too. Yeah. It
0: was posted by a, a, a good friend of mine who I went to seminary with and who is now a pastor in California, been a pastor, actually, in California for the past two decades. And I have a lot of respect for him. He's a very thoughtful, theologically grounded Lutheran Christian, and I, I really respect that in him, and I, I read his post, and my, my first question to him was, where did you get this information? So he yeah. made the claim that the, that the priest or priests involved were tear gassed, and that Trump, in taking the picture, had his Bible upside down, yeah. So my first thought was, "Wow, an upside down Bible. That's rich symbolically." Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to have a conversation with you about this, Mark, is that you've done your graduate work in semiotics, and so I'd love to get your take on on what that is and how you think this could shed light on Trump's action. But what I did was, I, to the best of my ability at the moment, uh, did some exploring and found out where he got his source. His source was uh, Thomas Friedman, who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times on June 2nd called America, We Break It, It's Gone. And he says, instead, we have Donald Trump, a man whose first instinct, he's talking about what's happening when it comes to the protests and the the, the lack of unity. He says uh, his first instinct when the country is being ripped apart was to have peaceful protesters tear gassed And shoved aside so that he could talk to a nearby church just for a photo op outside holding a Bible. He did not open that Bible to read a healing passage. He did not enter the church to host a healing dialogue. He posed for a photo op to drive up his support among white evangelicals. Trump was holding the Bible upside down. And so, and my friend says he trusts uh, Friedman. That's fine. I have seen other sources or other other voices on the Internet make the same claim. And I did read the firsthand account of one of the priests who was on the premises at the time. And he says that even though I don't gather he was directly tear gassed, he and a, a, a seminarian, an intern, was, uh, were caring for people. And he says, I was coughing, her eyes were watering, and we were trying to help people as the police in full riot gear drove toward us. And uh, that's terrifying to me. I don't don't know where you are on the political spectrum, and I guess that's why it's good that you and I are talking about this. It doesn't matter when it comes to human decency and civil rights. I I find what happened there absolutely horrific.
1: Yeah, I really do. I think this moment in particular should transcend politics. I don't think we can say this is a Democrat or Republican issue. This is just, like you said, a human rights issue. And I would have been offended if he had sent Secret Service agents over and said, hey, you guys need to clear the area. The president's coming over to take a photo. Or if they had just kind of verbally moved them acro- moved them away. But just the fact that it sounds like they went right to tear gas, right to rubber bullets, and um, assaulted American citizens who are just in the street as as they will. And maybe even worse trespassed. I mean, they went on private church property. It sounds like to do this work. And, um, the priest, I
0: think, uh, Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I think that that just is beyond political. That's just, that's just egregious, just in that. And we haven't even got to the symbolism of holding a Bible upside down in front of a church and not being there to pray, not doing anything seemingly religious, not speaking anything, um, you know, peaceful or prayerful or hopeful or anything. Um, when, you know, when they asked somebody, one of the reporters said that, you know, in, the, in the video of it, uh, what's that book you're holding? And he said, it's a Bible. And um, he, he just he didn't have anything substantive to say. It was like, in some ways, this, this could have been your moment. And he just had nothing to say except for something glib about, we have, uh, America's a great nation or something. And um, yeah, I mean, the whole scene I thought was just horrifying.
0: I remember when 9/11 happened, and President George Bush made a reference to scripture, and the scripture in question was a kind of watered-down uh, quotation. It was Romans 8:38 to 39. I say watered-down. That's not the right language. I don't want to demean what he did. I thought it was appropriate. He was talking about how we are that that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now. Uh-huh. The, Fuller quotation makes it more particular. It's nothing to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But I appreciated at least the effort at that moment to unite the country. Whereas in this case, you have this incredible moment, like you said, where instead of perhaps referring to Romans 838, President Trump could have quoted Galatians 328 which talks about how we are all one in in Christ, male or female, Jew or Greek, and it says slave or free given the context in which it was written. And I think that or something like that could have been really powerful, like you're saying, but instead it was entirely skipped over, which I think then justifies religious leaders standing up and, and condemning this as merely a photo op to garner support among his base. I mean, Rather even if he attempt to bring people together using a symbol that many of us in this country do hold sacred. And I think even if he had in that moment
1: said something in an attempt to be peaceful or uniting or something like that, the irony still wouldn't be lost in us watching him part the crowds with tear gas and rubber bullets to go to, you know, to go take that moment. Um, I think all of those are pretty symbolic actions that um, are speaking volumes to us and i think it's our responsibility honestly as uh, as clergy and just as human beings to be able to speak truth to power and say that's wrong
0: everything about that from the first step he took out of the white house was wrong the way that that, that he that, that that he managed this the the approach everything and when you talk about the, the crowds being separated by tear gas, it makes me think of how Moses separated the waters, <laughs> And Trump sep- se- Moses separates the waters using his staff and Trump separates the crowds using tear gas. Yeah, and I, I think that comparison should be gone or others like it that yep. illustrate how problematic this was from not a Republican or Democrat perspective, but from a, uh, a human rights, a civil rights, and really a faith perspective.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, um, the, you know, the other, uh, you know, Moses parting the water. I also think of, for some reason, this, the first, one of the first stories that popped into my imagination, um, was the story that we often hear on Palm Sunday of Jesus riding into the Jerusalem, you know, in this kind of humble circumstances, you know, there's no, uh, the, the parade route is lined with just foliage that people found in the streets and clothes that they'd laid down. And, um, So that's the story in the book that he's holding and he's acting out a very different narrative in, um, in real life, you know,
0: there, yeah, there is nothing consistent with, with scripture, at least nothing, nothing uplifting and life-giving that is, that is consistent with scripture here. I, or at least is in scripture that is consistent with this. I, I guess for my part, You know, even talking about this, it's funny. I I don't know if you've noticed, but it's now been twice that you and I have qualified that it's okay to take a position against what happened, whether we're Democrat or Republican. And there's part of me that laments the fact that that we can't speak out on anything considered political. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that we have to constantly spiritualize the gospel when as Martin Luther King said, the gospel has political implications yeah. and those political implications may not necessarily align with either party's perspective, but the very sure. fact that we are sort of uh, that we are discouraged from saying anything, I think really puts, puts us and puts all clergy at a disadvantage when it comes to speaking out against injustice. And that, it seems to me, is what we see in this particular situation. But so here's
1: a weird symbolic issue. I mean, I've been in ordained ministry uh, this July. It will be 13 years. And I mean, I can't believe it's been that long already, but um, somehow year after year keeps adding up. And I have, for the most part, really resisted the temptation to become overly political in my preaching and my actions to kind of remain politically neutral. And I think that's a conviction that a lot of that, that I have. That I think a lot of our colleagues have had um, both now and, and, you know, generations of our colleagues have held that conviction that the church is not the place to get political. And um You know, I feel like for all these years of being, you know, in public professional ministry, I've been told to stay in my lane. And now we have a, which I think artificially handcuffs us because sometimes our actions do have political ramifications. Even if we're not trying to be political, we're not trying to be like pro Democrat or pro uh, Republican or anything. We're just speaking about human values and justice and,
0: and basic scriptural uh well, and stories putting, putting our neighbor first i mean that has to have political implications for how we understand say the common good so what do we do then when the president that we're not supposed to politically criticize
1: you know so if i'm supposed to stay in my lane then do we have this kind of unspoken mutual commitment that he's going to stay in his lane too and what happens when he come you know now i feel like he's in my lane <laughs> and That's it's right. like is it is it okay now that i can be critical or is it, is this still are the rules of me not being political still in place?
0: It does feel like he is, that he has co-opted this, uh, this sacred text for his own political purposes. And I think what's unfortunate is that there's a, in, in my opinion, and I've been in ministry for almost four years now. And before that was a professor of religion, in my opinion, I, I've noticed that there's a double standard and the double standard, yeah. is: if you are a mainline Protestant pastor. You are to stay in your lane. As you said, you are <laughs> not to, to, to say anything from the pulpit that would be political because that could jeopardize, for example, apparently your, your, uh, the church's status as a nonprofit organization. And that's fine. I, I can understand that. And I've stayed in my lane quite often too. But when it comes to white conservative evangelicals, they get a free pass and they yeah. can speak politically from the pulpit, whereas those of us who are in the mainline tradition, because we're perceived to be of a different party, can't. And I don't know what to do about that. I do know that when the, uh, when the Charlottesville incident happened and I took to the pulpit and I said to my congregation, look, we come out of a tradition that was started by a man whose later writings were used to support the rise of Nazism and the justification of, of Nazism in Germany. Martin Luther in 1542, as you know, wrote a document called On the Jews and Their Lives. And it was it was in part an expression of Luther's frustration that after the gospel had been freely preached for what was then several decades or a couple of decades, the Jews hadn't converted. So that's Luther's story. The ELCA publicly uh, um um, repudiated the, uh, these, uh, this writing and Luther's other anti-Jewish writings, and I'm glad that the ELCA did that, I felt at that moment that I had to speak out against anti-Semitism because if we don't do it, if we don't take the lead on this as right. people who come from a, a tradition that has this checkered history, then we are the ones who I believe have not learned from our history. And who are uh, not doing what we should be doing, and so I did. And I was told after the service that I was being too political. And one of my one of my uh, parishioners said to me after that, uh, he actually told me that someone said to him it was too political. That's this was a couple years ago, but he told me that's how it went. And, and I said, "Wow!" I said, "What did you say?" And he said, "Well, I told this person calling out neo Nazis is political." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know and so i think to myself there's this real this real challenge yeah. that we have to speak out prophetically and not be blasted for leaving our lane politically
1: well and it's a weird conundrum right because i think as as pastors we are called to both be caring and pastoral but i think we also are called to be prophetic and in, in our ordination vows I, was, I don't know we call them vows really but in our ordination commitments um, we promise to speak for justice. I mean, we we take that as part of our central understanding of what it means to be ordained in Word and sacrament. And um, then when we take that too seriously, though, we uh,
0: we get reminded that we need to stay in our lane. Right. I, I've been told, I, I I've heard this over the years that well, the church shouldn't be political, and, and it's bad when the church get in, gets involved in politics. And my counterexample is always the civil rights movement. Yeah, that was a, a movement that was coordinated by uh, black churches in the South. Yeah, and they became political for something that most of us agree was really important. It didn't go far enough, but uh, for sure. But the fact that the church can't be political is something that I think history itself should call into question. But I do think there I mean, here we're going to go back to the, you know, kind of the middle
1: way here. I think. Um... I think something toxic does happen when a church does become too political. I think you end up with, you know, I I don't want to see the ELCA, for example, become the prayer wing of the democratic party. Um, I don't want to see, you know, evangelicals become co-opted by the agenda of right-wing politics. Um, I think something toxic happens when you become, uh, enmeshed. And I think that's where the church becomes, something unique and yet something important where we are a caring, compassionate um, justice oriented body in the community that we've been called to serve, but we also reserve the right to be prophetic. And that, and by that, I mean, we also reserve the right to speak truth to power. And I think that's in an apolitical way. It doesn't matter what party is currently in the majority in, uh, in our local state or national politics in any one of those entities, if if we need to exercise our voice to speak truth to power, I think that is also probably uncomfortable, but also a critical part of what it means to be the church in the world today. And um, I think another one of our legacies as Lutherans that I'm concerned about in this moment is our tendency to quietism. You know, I mean, back to the Nazi Germany example, I think there were a lot of Lutherans in, in Nazi Germany that just kind of like, well, this... Seems to be a political issue. And I think there were there was a tendency just to kind of be quiet about it. And um I don't know if that's just my um my Caucasian white privilege heritage, or if that's some Lutheran culture that seeped into my bones theologically throughout the years, this kind of tendency to like, well, let's just see if this blows over, you know, let's just be quiet about it. This this'll probably go away. This'll this'll fix itself, or this the political system will take care of this. It's not Maybe appropriate for me to speak up, and I don't want to be alarmist. Um, but I, I do think that I'll speak for me. I have a tendency to, at least at first, be quiet, and I think that's a temptation that our church, I see around um, in our church more more than I'd uh, than I'd care to see, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I think that our church can be guilty of the paralysis of analysis sometimes. Right. Yeah. And when I first learned about the protests, my and and thought about well, what can the church do? My first instinct was well, we could do a forum series. <laughs> yes. And then I thought, what a great <laughs> way to kill any kind of any kind of prophetic action. Well, and isn't that, I mean, the microscope and studying it through the lens of white privilege. (laughs) I don't
1: think anybody could call us anti-intellectual. I mean, we're we're
0: certainly not that, although I I do think, and I really appreciated what you said earlier about your concern that we become the prayer wing of the Democratic Party. I really think that you're onto something there and that we do walk this line between quietism on the one hand and being co-opted politically on the other. And my understanding is that I'm I'm thinking, for example, about the fact that we have tried to do some things, small things in the neighborhood, uh, for example, when it comes to climate change. And yes, we had a forum on it. (laughs) but, But there are many people who would say, well, that's a political issue. And I have addressed that issue from the pulpit. But what I learned from a local nonprofit with whom we work uh, earth ministry, you may, you may work with them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic organization. Fantastic. And what I learned from them is that you're you're over the line. If you are endorsing a political candidate as a church, and I would never ever do that, whether it is in the pulpit or in a, in a forum, I would never do that. Having said that there are issues that we feel strongly about because of our values and our faith and, and, and because of how we read scripture, we believe, for example, that that the world is a creation of God and that God gave this world to us, you might say, to be stewards of God's creation. We believe that because of sin, we are separated from God and that we treat God's creation in ways that go against the intentions of the creator. Right. So I think out of that. uh reading out of that particular uh, theology, we are justified in, in speaking out on behalf of creation from a faith perspective. And that I think as long as you- endorse candidates who do. But and we, as
1: long as you don't then make that connection too explicit and say like, care of creation is intrinsically a Christian value. I mean, this is a big part of it, but then you, then you don't say, so therefore you have to vote for so-and-so. Right. And I think that's the nuance that's important. I think we just, we're the ones that raise up these issues and speak the truth. And I think as theologians of the cross, we're also committed to speaking, calling a thing that which it actually is, right? I mean, the, the Heidelberg disputations. Um, and if if we can't do that, then we're really, I don't know what we're doing. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's certainly not consistent with my sense of my own call to ministry. It just puts us in an odd quandary then. But I think it's, It's important for us to do that and to keep pushing the edges of that, but I'm also then committed to not um, making the connection to a certain political party or political candidate.
0: I love the the quotation you cited from, from Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. It was written early in his theological career, and the line is, a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is, and I believe, it sounds like we agree here, I believe that we as pastors are called to, to, to do that sometimes, every time in fact, we speak about these things from the pulpit. I also agree that, that it's sort of like there's this fork in the road. You can take one of maybe two or several political uh, roads and that our job is to speak right at that fork, right before oh, it, interesting. It, it goes in two or three different directions And really invite people to pause for a moment and think about how their values Mm -hmm. inform the direction they will potentially take. And you're right. It is not my job and it is not your job to do that. In fact, I would say as a former educator, I think that undermines the integrity of of people intellectually to decide for themselves. Having said that, I really do believe that we we are called to make this to make it clear when there is an issue pertaining to our values as Christians that we want to address. But then, of course, let people come to their own conclusions. Now, there are some things, obviously, where we do have to be clear about conclusions, like neo-Nazism is wrong, right? Right. yeah. Short of of some of those. Uh, And I think that would also obviously include racism is wrong. I can't believe that
1: I have to still issue statements to that effect. I mean, I know. Yeah. Oh, my God. I am infuriated that I and I'm happy to do it. I mean, as long as that exists, I will speak against it. But I just am like. Really, this is how is this still a thing? You know,
0: why are we, you know. Well, and the fact that you're calling something out as as racist, for example, and somebody comes back at you and says, well, that's a political view. I just think to myself, "What, what happened here? Since yeah. when is that merely or or simply a political view and since when is that not an uh, an issue for us as Christians to deal with directly or or other people of faith to deal with directly or people of goodwill not of faith to deal with directly it just i think is very unfortunate that so many of these things are politicized and then relegated to the margins as inappropriate for conversation in say the context of a synagogue or a, a mosque or a or a church.
1: Well, in my vision for the community that I serve at St. Luke's is that we can be a place of dialogue and discussion. And in fact, I think the church is one of maybe the last places where people gather and can disagree on things. And I love the ha- the idea of having a a congregation that um, you know has authentic conservative representation and authentic. Um, democratic representation and re- representing a, a robust difference in dialogue between uh, political parties. One of the congregations I served on uh, when I was in Shelton, um, we had Earth Ministries come out and they did this, live. Sim- they were part of my Live Simply seminar series I did. And I just remember being absolutely stunned. There was a group of conservatives that were participating in that conversation and a group of um, kind of the uh, real left kind of hippie kind of folk. (laughs) We were all sitting in that room, and I just remember kind of scratching my head thinking, well, how is this going to go down? And they started talking about compact and light bulbs, and energy saving, and all this stuff. And my left-leaning folks were there. They loved this because it was saving the environment. They loved this because it spoke to their values of creation, and care of creation, and all of that kind of stuff. My conservative leaning people they were thrilled because this was financially you know good decision you know they they this is saving money and this is these are great and so all of a sudden these people came together and realized they had these shared common values and it was over light bulbs but i like to think it was a profound moment um, and i love that kind of image of what the church could be and that we um you know, we can get together and talk about police and talk about justice and talk about what does it mean to keep our streets safe and recognize the value of, um, of law and order and safety and justice, but also recognize the value of, of community and protest and disruption and recognize pain and anger and, and be a place where those can all, those expressions can all respectfully come to fruition.
0: One of my favorite lines in the whole new Testament when it comes to ministry is what Paul says in second Corinthians, he says, ours is a ministry of reconciliation. Yeah. that's. And I think now more than ever, the church is called to be that, especially given the fact that our political leadership has not only failed to provide that, but is doing the opposite of that, tearing us apart when really we need to be having a conversation that brings us more together. And I think part of that i want to circle back now to the to the the topic of the upside down bible i think a symbol of how that uh, of how the the divide on the one hand is is dominating conversation is is one where instead of being presented with a bible that uh that is right side up in front of a church that embraced this particular moment in, in a context where people were tear gassed because they were simply in the way, even though they were peacefully protesting, even though the priests were handing out hours before that water bottles and granola bars to the yeah. protesters. So the way all this happened, culminating in the Upside Down Bible, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that Upside Down Bible symbolizes to you.
1: Well, I mean, I think you know, the images that I would draw from are, boy, I mean, what does it mean to be upside down? Right. I mean, the first image that comes to my mind is the, the symbol of distress when you hang an American flag upside down, Mm -hmm. you know, if, um, if you see American flag upside down, right. I mean, I was trained as a, you know, a kid in boy Scouts, like that's a symbol of distress. Something has gone, gone wrong. And um, although that's not officially uh, a Christian um, symbol that i that i know of that if you hold the bible upside down something is wrong um, I, I i think it certainly in it certainly spoke to me a situation of distress and i don't think that was the intended message and i think that was um it was just it was distressing though to see the you know the, the image of our sacred text held upside down um it also indicates a unfamiliarity and even an, an irreverence, um in the in the uh in the hands of the holder I think
0: my view is a little different i i understand and, and and instead of the flag which i think is a great comparison i i want to compare it to the the most popular symbol in christianity and that is the cross of christ yeah and i remember as a kid and it's not it's not something that i i would recommend for parents but i I remember seeing horror movies as a kid when I would go to friends' house. My mom and dad didn't allow me to see them, but I would go to. <laughs> they would have them, and I remember in some of those horror movies you would see crucifixes upside down, yeah, and sign of diabolical evil, yeah. And so when I think about the Bible in this context, after innocent people who were peacefully protesting have just been tear gassed by the government. On the steps of a church, to me, something evil has happened here. Wow! And I would even I would even use the word something diabolical. Yeah. And uh, and I think that that Bible, the way it was used, points us to a really scary dimension now of contemporary life in America, and that is that people are being killed and hurt because of whatever this, however you want to describe it, this this particular zeitgeist, this mood, this spirit, however you want to describe it, there's something really wrong happening here. And it seems to me that it culminates in the upside down Bible.
1: That's really fascinating. And well, you just were talking about the upside down cross too. And then you think about those that were crucified upside down. Right. Um, I mean, it, it seems especially horrific. I also wonder if, you know, the uh, atrocity and I mean, the clear uh, abuse and violation of George Floyd and his death at the hands of police, um, Ahmed Aubrey, I mean, and, I mean, we could go on and on all the lists um, of names. Um, I wonder if at this moment, it also is exposing a uncomfortable, but very real and deeply embedded reality of systemic racism and structures of evil. And when those things are so blatantly exposed, the reaction is going to be really powerful. And I think maybe that was an expression of that reaction of these very, very powerful and evil systems have been exposed. And now all of a sudden we have the president with a Bible upside down in front of a church having tear gassed uh, peaceful protesters. Um,
0: And I, I, I'm, Mindful of Hannah Arendt, who wrote about Um, the reality of evil in the middle of the 20th century and how, based upon the testimony of Eichmann, how the biggest evil of Nazi Germany was how people turned an indifferent eye to necessity and to uh, uh, efficiency. And people would say, well, I'm just doing my job. That's what Eichmann Eichmann said. And I, I, I worry that the, the, the greatest evil in this context will be turning away an apathy from something that totally demands our attention. And I hope we don't lose this moment uh, to that. Yeah, I think it is an incredibly
1: powerful moment for uh, the church. And isn't it amazing that we're doing this in the context of we're not gathering, our church buildings are still closed. Uh, you know, all I feel like we're um, just outside of all this, an incredible moment in the church that we're also now able to have these conversations and make these statements and be the church in, I I hope, what will be profound and powerful ways. I am, I'm really hopeful that the church, even though we can't physically gather in our area right now. Um, Will still be a voice and still be a presence that's bold and powerful in the community.
0: I I guess we might close with another symbol that I that I uh, heard about. It was from one of our colleagues who was in a protest up uh, up north of Seattle, and he was wearing his clerical, and uh, he was by his own admission. He helped stop um, somebody from running into a crowd of people. And that person ended up uh, ended up driving over his foot, actually. Wow. Uh, And he ended up having a long conversation with with this person. But when I think of that symbol, I think of this crowd of, of protesters and someone driving into them because his way was being obstructed. And out of all of that, you have in the middle of it, I can almost see it, you have a, a pastor standing there with the clerical on, mm-hmm. symbolizing that there is another way. And and the yeah. fact that that out of that actually came conversation, that the man ended up, I don't know if he was totally sorry, and I don't want to say things ha- ended up happily ever after, but I do think that the symbolic presence of a clergy person in the mm-hmm. midst of, of that particular situation was helpful and it showed people no matter what they think about organized religion or particular denominations that in that moment, there was another way. And I don't know if that way would have been there if he hadn't been there and hadn't been dressed in his, in his clergy garb. I don't know, but I, I I hope that there are more life giving ways that we can appeal to symbols in the days and weeks ahead than what we saw uh, this past uh, friday
1: well isn't it a cool thought that our presence in the community is symbolic if not sacramental in that we are representing something much larger than ourselves um we're bearing witness to this other way uh, right. i think that's that's an absolutely profound way to think about not just those that are in clerical callers but all the baptized um being a symbolic presence of the living God, um, especially in this season of Pentecost, where we think about the power of the Holy spirit that accompanies us in all of these actions.
0: Right. It's so interesting, by the way, I think it was this last, uh, I want to say it was this last uh, Tuesday. It was earlier this week, not late last week, but, but I, uh, I agree with you. And I, I guess I just, I'm hopeful that, that we will come together on, on this. And I hope that we can use our Bible and our, the symbols of our faith tradition in ways that are life-giving. There has to be another way.
1: And I think for us that profess the Christian tradition, that way is, you know, I'm thinking of John 14. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And I think um,
0: for those of us that profess that tradition, that's the way. Right. The way of a nonviolent Messiah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Mark, this has been great. Thanks for being here. Where can people find out more about you and your ministry? Hey, this has been really fun.
1: I really appreciate the conversation and the time. It's always fun to be a guest on God for Grownups. You can find more about St. Luke's at our website, which is slukes.org. You can catch us on Facebook or we are on YouTube at uh, youtube.com forward slash St. Luke's
0: Lutheran Church. And you can find out more about my ministry. That's Queen Anne Lutheran Church, queenannelutheran.org. We have a number of services online that you can listen to as well as on a video on YouTube. And if you enjoyed this episode of God for Grownups, you can subscribe in the section below. Thanks for listening.